Russian Ark, 2002, directed by Alexander Sokorov. In John Carpenter's Halloween, our first scene is an unbroken POV shot detailing the stalking and murdering of a teen girl by the young Michael Myers. Point of view has been something of an unflattering statement by directors to their audience. In horror, it's, it's a way to implicate us, along with our killers. In Psycho, we spy on Janet Lee in her lingerie. You and the killer are now in this for the same reason, directors seem to say. Fair enough. For an audience that doesn't seem to question its consumption of popular culture, a little introspection couldn't hurt. But what happens if we take point of view and turn it the other way around, to make the audience feel good about who they are and what's marvelous about the world around them? Alfred Hitchcock's rope was a gallant concept to create a film in one take, and it was doomed for many reasons. One was ultimately that rope is a play, and it feels like a play. And if you want to go see a play, then you should see a play, not a film of a play. In retrospect, rope is like going to a museum to see photographs of famous paintings. Why create the technology to point out a camera at something and take a picture if all you're going to take is a picture of a picture? But enough existential questions. Besides that, rope was limited by the technology of its time. It's impossible to make a film in one take because of one thing. Film. A camera only holds enough film for 10 minutes worth of footage, so you can't make a feature in one take no matter how well you rehearse or how much you plan your camera movements. Hitchcock got around it with some very obvious soft cuts, and he still did some cool stuff in that film. Honestly, that shot of the maid clearing the table is one of the tensest scenes I've ever seen, but you can still see the seams. Great effort, but, you know... Which is why, in a world full of film buffs lamenting the death of celluloid, we have a bright, shining beacon in a film only made possible by the advent of digital. With a hard drive strapped to your back, you can film for as long as you want and not have to cut a thing. Why didn't we think of this before? Oh yeah, it's because filming a long shot is super hard. Even in a film like The Adventures of Tintin, where the extended action scene takes place entirely within the realm of computer animation, you can smell the animation sweat of two dozen software engineers trying to get the textures right before telling their wives that they have to miss another anniversary. It takes dedication. Anyway, Russian Ark. A one and a half hour trip through the Hermitage Museum. No cuts and 300 years of Russian history packed with people I don't even know about. And yet it's one of the most compelling concepts ever turned to film. The audience is, in reality, confined to a single point of view, that of an unknown spirit or time traveler trapped in the museum. But the viewer is spiritually unconfined, neither by space nor time. It's an odd feeling to watch a film and suddenly get the feeling that you're your own person, able to move around wherever you want in the world of the film. Sokorov's camera moves only in ways that a human would. It's actually a steady cam carried by a lone cameraman, so there are no sweeping crane shots or dolly shots, low angle shots or bird's eye views, unless we happen to be on a balcony or in an orchestra pit. Because there are no cuts, close-ups and wide shots happen organically. The camera's movement is clearly grounded in the rules of human movement and human vision, so the audience can simply slip into that point of view like a mental glove. The Marquis de Custine the viewer's traveling partner, provides a much-needing companionship that makes Russian Ark more than just a museum simulation. He's the audience's confidant, delivering information and providing conversation. He's the only character that really talks to the camera, criticizing the art on display, and interacting with the historical figures we come across. He works almost as an extension of the camera, or of our character, or something like that. Doing the things that the camera cannot, providing grand gestures and conversation and interacting with the other characters in a way that a POV character can't. 
The camera follows him around most of the time, but asserts its independence by panning away from him every once in a while so it can look at an interesting painting or explore a scene like a video game level. The Marquis disagrees with people, intimidates them, and provides some much-needed character, but more than that, his value as a companion can't be overstated. The audience grows attached to him as a confidant. He's the only one that really talks to us, even if it's just to criticize our provincial artistic tastes. So, what one gets from Russian Ark is a unique sense of voyeurism. Being a free-moving entity who can just go wherever he wants and peek in on the things he was never meant to see. The camera gets to witness an argument between Peter the Great and his son, listens in on the conversations between obscure Russian politicians, and explores the imperial court, getting close to ambassadors and czars the way only an invisible spirit could. Even the courtiers lined up by rank can't rival our point of view. Rather than implicating us the way some horror films do, Russian arcs points of view empower us. We get the feel that we're seeing something akin to a lost treasure. A true glimpse back in time, enhanced by the opulent costumes and well-rehearsed extras, who seem like nothing less than what we would see if we went back in time, actually in real life, and turned on the camera. And that's another aspect which gives Russian Ark a great deal of power. Nostalgia. Even the title and the final shot of the film itself refer to the Hermitage as a vessel, carrying Russian culture and history through the mists of time, preserving it, cherishing it, and protecting it. The narrator, the camera, our unseen spirit and point of view, understands the excitement of what we're seeing. The Marquis is more cynical and unimpressed because these are all things he's seen before. They're of his time. He doesn't know what, from our point of view, has been lost. Only at the middle point of the film, when he and the audience get the briefest glimpses of St. Petersburg during the war, does his tune change. We, the audience, discover what's been lost as well throughout the film. You don't have to be Russian to understand that there was something grand about the Russia of the Tsars. You certainly don't have to be a time traveler to understand that it's all gone. That sadness reaches its high just after our climax, the ball. Structurally, the film builds the sense of sadness even before the ball begins. The second-to-last historical episode is a glimpse into the life of the Romanovs. The viewer sees these doomed monarchs not as grand autocrats like Nicholas I in the embassy scene, but as a simple family. Empress Alexandra fears for the safety of her children, especially her frail son. Nicholas II is a warm father, playfully scolding his daughter for being late for tea. We leave them in a scene of quiet domestic bliss, left to ponder their fates at the hands of a revolutionary firing squad. But then the ball begins. But then the ball begins, and one witnesses the height, the height of imperial grandeur. It's impossible to describe the ball scene, so I won't. You have to see the movie. What I can describe is what happens after. The ball ends, and the guests slowly filter out of the ballroom and down the grand staircase. It's sad and four different ways. First, there's a disappointment, that sort of general disappointment at the end of a, of a great party, that sort of low melancholy collie that follows at the end of the ball. Second, there's the sadness of the audience's separation from the Marquis. The man that's been our confidant throughout the entire voyage through time and space has decided to stay where he is rather than continue the journey. It's a drawn-out departure, perhaps mirroring both characters' reluctance to part. However, part they do. Third, 
we sense that the movie is indeed ending. Slow, low music guides us down the grand staircase among the costumed extras, not a one looking out of place, providing the audience with one last look at opulence before we are thrust back out of our movie theaters and into the dull modern world. Fourth, we sense what is actually the end of an era, the end of a moment in time where it, af, where everything will change and grow unfamiliar. The ball depicted in Russian Ark is one that took place in 1913, the last grand ball to take place in the Hermitage before the First World War and the Russian Revolution put an end to opulence altogether. And while it may be tasteless to be nostalgic for a time and place where millions went hungry and the world was a powder keg, it's difficult not to see the grandness of it. It's not difficult to see why the Hermitage still stands today, as the Ark that protects that memory. Russian Ark is an experience. I hate using that phrase, and I know that it sounds limp and twisted, but it is an experience. The fact that it's been committed to a video disc doesn't mean that it hasn't been extracted in its purest form. If we are the kind of beings who, when we die, find out that time isn't a straight line that we thought it was, and that we can intersect the past and future like rows on a checkerboard and pass our ancestors unseen in the night, then wouldn't that be something to look forward to? It's probably not, of course, but you never know. If it's anything like Russian Ark, I think that would be just fine. That was Russian Ark, 2002, directed by Alexander Sokorov. It happens to be, uh, if you don't, if you can't get a DVD, it happens to be on Netflix right now, so you have a chance to see one of the most fascinating experiences in movie history. So, I'm Andrew, this is my uh, cinema immersion tank for this week. Join us soon for our discussion of something quite different.